Our scripture reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 15, 22 through 16, 21, 31 through 35. If you'd like to follow along in your Bible or the Red Pew Bible in front of you, I'll give you a, a minute to look that up. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat about around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that we should grumble against to us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? We are not grumbling against you are not grumbling against us but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, "Say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord for he has heard your grumbling." While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, "I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, this, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told, and some gathered much, some little, and when they measured it by the omer, 
He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come, so they can see the bread that I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. As we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Exodus, would you pray with me? God and Father, I pray now as we turn to your word that you would build us up in faith and hope and love. You would equip us to be your people following you. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Pray that all of us sinners might hear from your word the truth and that I, a sinner, would be safeguarded as I proclaim it. Amen. So I am going to risk everything up front in this sermon by telling you the point of the sermon and the point of this text right up front, okay? And hopefully it doesn't spoil it. But that is that God promises to provide. God promises to provide for our needs. That is what Israel is meant to learn in the desert from these experiences. They face these challenges. The first one we heard about was of thirst. They've just crossed the Red Sea, and they've seen God triumph over Egypt, but they quickly realize that the desert is a desert, and they don't have water to eat. And so they come to this place called Merah, whose name literally means bitter. And while there are springs or some kind of water there, they find that they can't drink them, maybe because they're saltwater springs or they're a brackish lake. Um, But regardless, Israel is thirsty, and unsurprisingly, if you have been with us for earlier parts of this series, they start to complain. So from 1524, and the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And then what happens? Well, verse 25, and Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. We're going to come back to the details of both of these stories, but God intervenes, shows Moses a log, and he throws it into the water, and it becomes drinkable. And then the next story is making the same point in many ways. Israel moves on from Merah, they take a break at this kind of oasis, and then travel back into the desert, and now the problem is food. 
chapter 16, verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, on one level, we should recognize that's meant to be kind of absurd, right? Israel was enslaved in Egypt. Yes, they had food to eat because they needed calories so that they could keep working for Pharaoh, right? But it was not the sort of idyllic thing that they paint. Um, But now they're facing this new set of challenges, and the past is kind of transformed in their minds. And instead of the mud pits of Egypt, it's the meat pots of Egypt that they're thinking about. And there is something really true in that about our discontented hearts and something that's true about the world that, um, as Mark Twain was fond of saying, it's not the good old days and it never was. But again, God intervenes and he provides food for them. First quail in the evening that they can catch for meat and then more remarkably bread from heaven in the morning. They call it manna. And he provides this bread for Israel all through their wilderness journey. If you read verse 35 of 16, it says, The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And again, the point of that is that Israel is supposed to learn that God will provide for their needs. He actually has Moses and Aaron take a jar full of manna, And set it in the tabernacle in verse 32. This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations. So that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness. When I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Which is to say this is supposed to be a memorial of God's provision. That for generations to come the Israelites can see this jar of manna. And know yes God provided for us then. And he will provide for us now. God promises to provide for our needs. That idea is as true for us as it is for people in the Old Testament, too. Jesus reminds us of it. For example, in his famous discussion of not being anxious, this is what he says. He says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. God promises to provide for our needs, just like Israel in the desert. Here's the thing. That is the point of this text, and in a sense, the core point of this sermon. And we could just leave it there. We could just say, all right, that's the truth. God will provide, you know, like, believe that. Sermon done, we're good, right? We're not going to be anxious anymore. We're not going to struggle to believe that anymore. We know the truth. If only life worked that way. Our problem, for most of us, is not that that is new information us, right? I mean, maybe for a few of us, we've never thought about that, but for most of us, if I said, do you know that God promises to provide and take care of you? You know, show of hands, we would say, yeah, right? We, we know that. However, most of us know it's true, but most of us also struggle to believe it, 
If I said, show of hands, how many of you, therefore, you know, never struggle with fear about the future, never wrestle with believing that God will provide, right? A lot less, you know, a lot less of us would be able to say that. I mean, I wouldn't be able to say that. Our struggle is not with that general idea, but our struggle is to believe that it's true in our lives. And there are a couple of reasons for that. But the one I want us to talk about this morning is that while we might know that it's true that God promises to provide, there's also other things that we believe in our minds. And they can cause us to misunderstand what that promise means. We end up believing that God's provision means something other than what it does. And then that causes us to struggle to believe his promise. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. Because as much as the point of these two stories is that God provides, the way that they play out is really meant to highlight for us a couple of realities about how God provides, about the way that his provision meets us, that actually help us to understand. And so the first of those, the first thing we recognize in these stories, is that God's promised provision is often unexpected. His provision is often unexpected. One of the strange things about these stories is that they're strange. Somehow I think we get used to that in Bible stories and don't notice it. But in each of them, God does not provide in the way you would expect. For instance, we read it already, but at Marah with the bitter waters, it says that Moses cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and it became sweet. What is up with that, right? Some people like to speculate that maybe there's some certain plant or wood that like filtered the salt out of the water and there's all these different proposals and maybe one of them is true. I don't know. And maybe, maybe not. Maybe the log didn't actually even do it, right? The point that, that God seems to be making to Israel is that they need to trust him. If you read verse 26, he says, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes, give ear to his commandments, keep all his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Which is to say in this story, what God's saying is like, I gave you this command that made no sense to throw this log into the water, and then the water became drinkable. And that's how you're supposed to understand my commands in general. That even if you don't understand them, maybe you should follow them. But it's strange, right? And then the manna is completely different. I love how confused Israel is when they first find it. Just listen again to that account and imagine their puzzlement, right? And they, the, when the dew was gone, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So God provides bread for their hunger, but again, It's weird, and they don't even know what it is until Moses explains it to them. And that's actually symptomatic of how the Bible describes these kinds of great works of God. Every one of them is different in terms of the details. In the very next chapter, we're going to get—we'll look at it next week, but there's another story where God provides water. But this time, it involves a staff and a rock instead of salty springs and a log. Um, And— you know, and, and it keeps playing out that way. You think about, like, the miracles of Jesus, right? I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but Jesus rarely does the same miracle twice. 
Sometimes he just like speaks and the thing happens. Sometimes he just touches the person or they touch him. Sometimes he'll give them instructions like go to the temple and present yourself and then you'll be healed. Sometimes it's even stranger, like the blind guy who Jesus spits in the mud and then he rubs it in his eyes and then somehow that heals his blindness. Some people actually read those stories and feel like because they're all over the place like that, that that's somehow a problem. That is actually the basis of basically all critical biblical scholarship, which is to say, well, when we see these things play out in different ways, that must mean there's different oral traditions that represent different communities that joined together in the text. And so people act like that kind of diversity in the Bible is somehow an issue. But the far simpler explanation is that that's actually part of the point. The assumption that those critics make, the assumption that we can make, is that if God was real, he must be predictable, and he must work in the ways that we expect. And that makes no sense if God is real, right? God created all the crazy diversity of our world. We should expect that kind of creativity to show in the ways he works. That unexpectedness of these ways that he provides is not, it's not a bug, right, of the Bible. It's actually a feature. But God's unexpected provision um, is something that we can also wrestle with, too. Because it reminds us of a reality about how we relate to God. Often, when we're struggling with God's provision, it's not so much that we're struggling to believe that God will provide as that we believe that he will provide only in the ways that we expect him to. God promises to take care of our needs, but he never promises to do it in the ways that we want or expect. I mean, we all have this story in our minds, right, of how we want our lives to go. We, we wake up in the morning and we have expectations for the day. You know, a new year comes and we make our goals and plans for the year. We think about decades from now and like, here's how I want my life to work. We all have these stories. And God provides for our needs but he does not promise to do it in ways that fit those stories that we tell ourselves. I remember a friend once remarked to me, we were both in seminary, he said, I need to be more careful what I pray for once. And I was like, why is that? And he said, well, lately with school and work and part-time, you know, and we have a kid and stuff, like, I was really feeling like my wife and I just weren't ever seeing each other, didn't have any time together, and so I started praying that God would give us some time to work on our marriage together. And I'm like, okay, that sounds reasonable. And he says, and then the engine of my car caught on fire. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and initially I was like, God, what are you doing? Like, we can't afford to fix this. But then over the next couple of months, as suddenly we had to drive everywhere together in our one car, and we started having an hour a day together in the car to talk and work on things, we found that these struggles we were having in our marriage were suddenly being worked through. The longer I live, the more I realize that that is typical of how God works, that he often answers those prayers in ways we don't expect. I mean, I think about our own life. I can't help but reflect personally. I remember um, we graduated from seminary, I did, and I was looking for my first pastoral call and had all these plans, and I was looking all over the place, like even like England and Canada and places, and then 
we had complications with our pregnancy with Canaan, and Elizabeth ended up on bed rest, and in the course of like a month, we went from that to like I packed up everything, moved back into my parents' basement initially, right, because she couldn't do anything. I, you know, started working on a farm and then in retail, and I got a job, right, as a part-time pastor working at the church back home where we had come from, but it was not at all the direction that I had wanted things to take. And I remember, in fact, as we continued there, commenting to Elizabeth as I kept trying to figure out ways to get out of it, that it felt like we were being almost supernaturally thwarted (laughs) to keep us in that place. And I don't want to pretend like that wasn't a hard season. Um, I would not want to go live it all over again. Um, Although I feel like in some ways one of the things I've learned about life is that a lot of seasons are that way. But the thing is, looking back now, I recognize there were all these ways that God was providing for us in the middle of that. There were friendships that we had had before we went to seminary that suddenly were deepened and became these lifelong things. And we had all this time with our families that we wouldn't have otherwise, which especially with Elizabeth's cancer diagnosis, we've been really grateful for. And um, even in terms of ministry, I feel like there was a set of lessons that I learned in that season— working full-time at a blue-collar job and also pastoring a church like 25 hours a week that I would not have gotten at your typical post-seminary job. A kind of realism and some skills that I know I wouldn't have learned otherwise. But of course, that's something I only recognize in the rear view. In the middle of that, right, working 60-plus hours a week, not being where I wanted to be, I was like, God, what is, what is going on? And sometimes I don't know that we even get that rear view ever in this life. But the point is that we need to be very careful that we don't confuse God providing for our needs with God making things go the way we want. Because God did provide for us during that season, but it was definitely not in the way that we expected. So that is one of the reasons we can struggle. God's provision is often unexpected. And a second reason is that God's promised provision is only enough. It is only enough. One of the core themes of Exodus 16 is that manna, while it comes every day, does not last. Here is God's command to Israel for how they should treat it. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as you can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. So they're to gather what their family can eat in a given day. But only for that day. There's an exception for the Sabbath. We kind of skipped over that part. But um, they can gather enough for that extra day before the day of rest. But otherwise, it's just one day. And, again, unsurprisingly, not all of Israel obeys. So verse 19, And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Why did they do that? Why, why did they gather, you know, why did they try to save it? I mean, the answer is super easy if you actually put yourself in their shoes. It's that they did not want to have to trust that manna was going to show up again tomorrow. That they um, wanted to save it up, have some wiggle room in case God didn't provide the next day. And an essential part of manna in Exodus is that it doesn't work like that. That every night Israel has to go to bed trusting that the Lord's going to provide it again the next morning. Jesus actually sounds that same note 
when he teaches us to pray. We pray it every week here at Kish, right? But think about that fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread. That is a direct echoing of what's happening here in the wilderness. We're saying, God, give us our bread, give us what we need for today, not less, but also not more. In Scripture, God promises to provide for our needs, but what he promises us today is only what is sufficient for today, not necessarily more. Now, to be clear, I am not saying God only ever gives us enough for today. In fact, he regularly blesses us way beyond that. I mean, I have all kinds of blessings beyond that, right? I mean, I don't need a smartphone or ten different outfits to wear to work. I don't, you know, I don't, it, it, I, you know, I have enough money in the bank that I can buy food tomorrow, right? Um, but, um, so I'm not saying that that's not true. God enormously blesses us beyond that. What I am saying is that God does not promise us those blessings. Sometimes, regularly, he gives us those crazy, undeserved blessings— But there are also times that he takes them away. And one of our problems is that we assume that he owes us those blessings. And he doesn't. He often strips them away and gives us only our daily bread. Let me try to just name a few ways we can fall into that trap in our world. One example, maybe an obvious one that we have to be mindful of in our world is the idea of financial security, of being financially secure, whatever that means, right? Because for different people, that means different things. But that is like one of the great ambitions of the American middle class. And it is a good thing to pursue financial security, right? Don't hear what I'm not saying. Like, absolutely be wise with money and save and invest and do what you can to pursue that as a goal— But God does not promise us that that's something that we will always have in our lives. Nowhere does scripture promise that the Lord will give us six months income in the bank and enough money for a comfortable retirement to support us until we're 100, right? We should be wise and seek as much of that security as we can find. But when there are times that we're confronted with hardships and we don't find ourselves with that, that does not mean that God is failing to provide. He simply made that level of crazy, undeserved blessing, right, a little bit less in our lives. And it's not just things like money, either. God's provision also includes intangible things, emotional and spiritual things. Think about the person who is struggling with something, some grief or some pain or some sin or addiction, whatever it is, The prayer of that person, the prayer of me when I'm struggling, is God, make this end, take this away, make it so I don't struggle anymore. Um, And I get angry when I wake up the next morning and I find (laughs) that hasn't been answered, right? And I'm still struggling. But God promises not to fix that and end it, but simply to give us what we need today to make it for today. People struggling with addiction actually are, like, they get this right. If you go to any 12-step program, right, they, they tell you take it one day at a time. The reason being that God provides you the strength today to make it through today. But at the end of the day, you go to bed tired, having to trust that tomorrow he'll give it to you for tomorrow. He doesn't give us enough strength for tomorrow today. 
He gives us our daily bread, provides enough. Maybe the best illustration I know of that reality is in the life of a um, 19th century pastor named George Mueller. He was a pastor in Great Britain, and he was, he was this kind of eccentric guy, honestly, but had this really profound faith. And in addition to pastoring this church um, in the UK, he also started five orphanages. They estimate that 10,000 orphans kind of went through the process of his care. But the remarkable thing about Mueller is that he did it, and he never once in his entire ministry asked anybody for anything, for money or any other kind of help. And I'm not actually suggesting that, that that's the right approach. Actually, I think Mueller's wrong about that conviction. But nonetheless, he still lived in a way where God provided. If you read through like this, the autobiography of George Mueller, if you want to read it, is really cool. It's basically just a collection of his journal entries. But it is full of stories like this one. One morning, the plates and cups and bowls on the table were empty, and there was no food and no money to buy food. And the children were standing waiting for their morning meal when Mueller said, Children, you know we must be on time for school. And lifting his hands, he prayed, Dear Father, we thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. And there was a knock on the door, and the baker stood there. And he said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt that you didn't have bread for breakfast, and the Lord wanted me to send you some. And so I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread, and I brought it over for you. And Mueller thanked him, and no sooner had the baker left than there was a second knock on the door, and it was the milkman, and he announced that his milk cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. And he was wondering if the orphans would drink the milk from the cart so that he could lift it up and repair it. And the thing is, if you read through his autobiography, if you read through his diaries, that's not a one-off thing. <laughs> There's like six different times where he goes to bed saying, we don't have any money for milk in the morning, and every time God meets the needs of these orphans. And again, I don't actually think he was right in that conviction that he couldn't ever ask anybody. But even with that being true, God provided for 10,000 children and Mueller's family, giving them their daily bread— but not always giving them any more than that. So that's two reasons we can struggle to believe that God provides. Because we expect him to only provide in certain ways, or because um, we expect him to give us more than he promises in our daily bread. But maybe just by saying those two things, you're wrestling a little bit in your heart. <laughs> and you're thinking, yeah, but Why? <laughs> Why does it have to work that way, right? Why can't I have more than my daily bread? Why can't things just play out the way that I want? And there's actually a third thing that we get from this text that answers that question. And that is that God's promised provision is ultimately himself. His promised provision is ultimately himself. The point of each of these miracles is to teach Israel about God. We already saw that in the bitter water, where we read it, where he says, if you'll diligently listen to me and obey me, he says, um, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Israel is called, as they drink this water, not just to recognize that the water is sweet, but to understand something about God and how he relates to them. That so, just as he cleansed this water, so he will cleanse their hearts and lives as they follow him. It's even more explicit with the manna. After the Israelites grumble, here is Moses' response. 
It says, So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. So the quail and the manna are not just food for them to eat, but they're signs that are supposed to reveal God to them, to teach them about who the Lord is. It's supposed to call them, ultimately, to put their trust not in the manna, but in God himself. Jesus develops that theme in the Gospels. There is this moment in his ministry where he has just fed the 5,000, right, with some loaves and fish. He divides it and miraculously it feeds these 5,000 people. And then this crowd comes to him in John chapter 6. And they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, just to spell out what's happening here, right? These people got fed yesterday all of this bread and fish, and they were full. And now they come to Jesus, and they say, So we need a sign, Lord. You know, that was a pretty—like, that was a literal free lunch. That was a pretty sweet deal. You know, in the wilderness, God gave Israel bread to eat every day for 40 years. Hint, hint. (laughs) And Jesus first corrects the way they read the story. Uh, he, he said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to undercut. He's saying, if, if, if all you're thinking about is the bread, you've missed the point. The point is God who gives this bread to his people. But the crowd is still insistent, so they say, Sir, always give us this bread. And this is where Jesus makes the famous proclamation, I am the bread of life. Which is to say, you're still not getting it. Stop thinking about filling your bellies and recognize that I am the bread that you crave. He spells it out a little later then in his speech. He says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. What Jesus is trying to get the crowd to understand is that God does provide for our needs. And he does bless us far beyond the bare minimums of provision. But the point is not the provision or the blessing. The point is the one who gives them to us. What we are being called to recognize as God works is that what we truly need is God himself. We need to know him and trust him and fear him and experience his presence daily. And you can have all the bread in the world, and if you don't have that, you have nothing. But if you have that, then you ultimately have everything you need. And that is why God provides in those other ways the way that he does. Why doesn't God just give us what we want? Why does he upset our plans? A big reason for that is that he is teaching us in the midst of our lives um, that we need him and stripping us of our idols. 
oftentimes our plans become these ways where we frame them in terms of serving God and smuggle our idols in the back door, right? I think about like in my life, like, oh yeah, I want to, you know, I want to be a pastor and, you know, and, and that's, you know, to serve Jesus and, you know, and glorify him and, you know, and go into the ministry. And that's true, but also, right, somehow in the way I envision that playing out, everyone likes me, and I'm paid really well, and, you know, and you get lots of accolades and respect, and, you know, I mean, and and what you're doing there is you're telling the story where you're serving God, but you're also smuggling in all of these other things that you want, right? All the comfort and recognition that you desire. And what God often does in stripping us of those things is to strip away those idols. Why does he guarantee us only enough, only our daily bread, Because, again, he wants us to learn to trust in him. When we face that kind of daily uncertainty, we're forced to turn to him and recognize that it really is him and not the food in the fridge or the money in the bank account that we're relying on. We're being forced, like Israel, to wake up each morning having to trust that God will give us bread for today. God's ultimate goal in how he provides is to give us himself, not just stuff. If I can just reflect on that personally again. I mentioned that season of our lives where we were forced to move back home and and had all of that happen. But over those years, like I said, I kept trying to get my plans back on track, and God kept on thwarting me. And, um, And in hindsight, like I said, I realized there's all kinds of lessons and blessings that I got from that season. But the biggest one was this. I think that in that season... What I was being forced to learn was that my life, and especially in my case, my ministry, because that's what I was processing through, had to be about God, and that was enough. See, when you're a young guy fresh out of seminary, you really think that you are something. (laughs) Like, you think you are God's gift to the church, and you've got everything figured out, and that your talents and abilities are really just essential. And you're smart enough not to say it out loud, but that's how you feel. Um, and you, you do also want to serve God, right? That is a desire of your heart, but those things so easily get mixed together. I mean, I don't know that, I think some pastors maybe never escape from that reality, and their whole ministries are dictated by that. And I am not going to pretend like I've solved all of that in my heart, right? (laughs) I'm not going to pretend, all of us struggle with that pride and that temptation to make things about ourselves. But in that season, the lesson that I was forced to learn was that I was not, God's gift to the church. I was not necessary. I was not essential. And God was making that very, very clear to me. Right? Before that, I think that some dark part of my heart really thought that I'm going to go be a blessing to Jesus. Right? And I'm going to go be a blessing to some church. And I recognize now, in a real way, rather, that being able to do this is a blessing that God has given to me. But I only am able to get that because of the fact that he thwarted me in that way and stripped me of those idols. And that is a lesson I am still learning. If maybe then I was being stripped of some idols about ministry, I recognize that we are now in an idol or a season where I'm being stripped of some idols of marriage and a comfortable, easy future. And, um, and I'm sure in seasons to come that there will be other things that I have to be shown. In fact, some of that's just unavoidable for all of us, right? Like, having children strips you of the idols that you're in control of your life, and, you know, and, and things are easy. Um, you know, getting older, 
strips us of the idols of our immortality and strength. But again, the reason for all of that is that as that happens, we're being called to recognize that God is calling us to recognize in himself what we truly need. That what he truly provides is himself. And as we close, if I can just speak one last truth briefly, that is enough. God is enough. Maybe the best way I know to summarize that is just using the words of George Mueller again. Like we said, um, his life was one of deep struggle. Already we mentioned, right, that just that struggle to know that God will provide when he's constantly in financial hardship. And he also faced a lot of personal loss. Um, he and his wife Mary had four children, but two of them were stillborn and one died in their infancy. And then Mary died when he was 57, and he lived another, like, 15 years after that. Um, And he never pretended that these were not deep tragedies. He speaks eloquently about how hard they are. But here is the conclusion that he says he draws from them. He says, The more I am in a position to be tried in faith, with reference to my body, my family, my service for the Lord, my business, etc., the more shall I have opportunity of seeing God's help and deliverance. And every fresh instance in which he helps and delivers me will tend toward the increase of my faith. And how could he say that? Well, the answer for him was this. He says, the more we know of God, the happier we are. When we become a little acquainted with God, our true happiness commenced. And the more we became acquainted with him, the more truly happy we become. What will make us so exceedingly happy in heaven? It will be the fuller knowledge of God. He says there's this happiness and joy and peace to be found in our experience of our relationship with God that is worth everything. Or to quote him then once more, Truly, I prefer by far this life of almost constant trial if I am only able to roll all my cares upon my heavenly Father and thus become increasingly acquainted with him to a life of outward peace and quietness without these constant proofs of his faithfulness. That is a source of true hope. God promises to provide, and that sustains us in the face of our daily trials and needs. That as we trust in him, he will meet our needs, Sometimes unexpectedly, sometimes not in as great a measure as we want. But more than that, that he will give us Jesus Christ, who is our true and deepest need. He is the true bread from heaven for us to eat and have eternal life. In him we can find a strength and a satisfaction and a happiness and a peace that nothing in this world can provide. Jesus is the true bread from heaven. In the midst of our struggles, our greatest hope is that we are given him to sustain us along the way. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks that you so graciously provide for us, and I pray that you would continue to do so. Thank you most of all that you have drawn us to yourself, and pray that we might know the joy and the peace and the hope that is found in daily having you near us. Pray these things in the name of Jesus, true bread and true drink. Amen.